morning, everyone. Good morning. So today we are gathered here to celebrate, have a disobedient women church service kind of sort of, I guess, because it, I mean, it's on a Sunday morning. And we're not going. And there's like two or two or more of us gathered here. So that would be considered a body of Christ if you really want to go there, regardless. <laughs> I love it. Disobedient woman church, women church. Love it. Yeah. I guess we're a little disobedient mm -hmm. because women in our culture typically shouldn't be um, preaching or speaking or leading. So with that being said, I'm grateful to be here with Lori Solsfus. Would you like to tell yeah. us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I was born Mennonite. Um, my dad was um, grew up Amish and um, became his family became Mennonite when he was two. So he really grew up uh, Mennonite, but <clears throat> around the Amish community in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Um, and what else? Yeah, I left the Mennonites when I was probably in my early twenties. Um, went to college and then later got my master's degree and now I'm a licensed therapist, lived in a few different areas of the country, but um, currently I'm in Virginia. That's wonderful. So there's a lot to unpack there between being born Mennonite to now being a licensed therapist. A yeah, a little, a little few things happened in the, in between there. Um, is that where you want to start? I mean, sure. Okay. So it's an interesting story because, um, uh, my life was just going along Mennonite, pretty traditional, typical. Um, I didn't really question things too much, even though I was always like pushing the button, like pushing the, the envelope as much as I could. Um, Probably something that changed the trajectory of my life. In 10th grade, we had a um, a teacher. My dad was on the school board, and he's actually influential in getting this teacher to come to our school. Um, his name is Ira Wagler. Um, he was Amish from Canada, but had been out of the Amish for a while. I think he had his um, attorney degree by then. Um, <clears throat> but he, he would always tell me that I was a really good writer and that... I should go to college, which of course does not happen in the Mennonite culture. So, um, <clears throat> and I remember um, on my, he came, he had, wasn't teaching there by the time I graduated, but he came to my graduation and he told me that one day I wouldn't be Mennonite. <laughs> and I laughed in his face <laughs> because that's all I knew. Um, and then my family, so the church we were a part of in Pennsylvania, um, if people know it, was the Mid-Atlantic Conference. So fairly conservative, cape dresses, homemade dresses, coverings, the whole nine. Um, but my family, right after um, high school, actually they moved halfway through my senior year of high school, and I stayed with my grandmother, so I wanted to finish with my friends. Um, we moved to um, South Carolina and went to a slightly more liberal Mennonite church where they 
didn't wear the homemade dresses and cape dresses and but we still weren't supposed to cut our hair and we were still supposed to wear they more wore like small veilings or doilies mm -hmm. um, and even then i remember debating getting out the bible with one of my friends and debating the scripture about wearing the covering but i was the one debating for wearing it so um, I think that's really interesting because then I was still pretty gung-ho <laughs> at that point, probably my late teens at that point. Um, I think I stopped wearing it sometimes around the age of 20. Um, shortly after that, kind of started partying and all that stuff, like would literally um, <laughs> leave the house with my skirt on and my hair up and my covering and take my pants pants on under the skirt but rolled up so my parents wouldn't know leave the house take them off and let my hair down wear makeup and we would go out wow that's where it kind of that was a little disobedient i would say you're in the right place <laughs> just just a little you're in the right place this is um i can see where this is concerning you know? <laughs> Um, may I may I ask a question? Yeah, anytime. So, with that being said, if you were in your teens, um, was there like underage drinking? Um, or I didn't actually drink until so that was there was a gap. By the time I was sneaking out, I think I would have been. But we would even go to the movie theater, and we would just talk. We weren't allowed to go to the movie theater. We would tell. <laughs> Oh, oh, that's straight to jail. <laughs> Wait. We would tell them that we were going to the mall, which wasn't a lie because the movie theater was in the mall. But we would literally go down the escalator or up the escalator, which was in the middle of the food court, scouting for Mennonites. So oh. that we wouldn't get caught. But I didn't, I didn't actually start drinking until I was 21. Um, uh, then we did go out to bars and clubs almost every night of the week. Oh. So yeah. what kind of information did you have? Like, were you aware of like some like safety things about drinking at that point in time? No, it was just drink as much as you could. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's, it's like horrifying, especially now as a therapist um, to think about the situations that I and we put ourselves in that I would never do now. Mm -hmm. We were more worried. The, the clubs were like an hour from home. Um, and we were more worried about getting in trouble. Um, so um, we would, if we, if we, if everybody was drunk, we would try and get home because we didn't want to get in trouble. And so sometimes we could stay at our, um, a friend, my one of my friends, her parents were traveled a lot, so we could stay at their house. But other times, I would sneak in. Like my dad was already getting up for work. We had a restaurant, and um, our house sits so that the basement is exposed. You can drive your car around. So I would drive my car around to the back of the house, and be coming in as my dad was leaving for work. Um, wow getting up for work and never questioned it. I really don't, I don't know if they knew or if they were just so trusting um, that I wouldn't, cause I never really was that kid that got in trouble. Yeah. 
So that was kind of how it started. And then at some point I felt guilty about a double life. So I wrote a letter to the church, like, and took withdrew my membership. Gotcha. I didn't want to be Mennonite anymore, clearly. And so I didn't really see a point in doing that. That makes sense. So that sounds like it, it was a lot. And like, I, I want to point out something for people who may not know is what Lori is talking about is the fact that there's no information available to us that even when we drink, we don't know, even if we're of age and we're consuming alcohol, we don't know how to drink safely or responsibly. We don't know about the dangers of overconsumption of alcohol. We don't we don't have access to information. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. And I've noticed um, just anecdotal, you know, I haven't done any research on it, but I've noticed that a lot of people coming out of plain Amish and Mennonite communities don't know how to drink responsibly. So it's, they just kind of go all out. Mm -hmm. and, you know, we were more concerned about, like I said, not getting in trouble than getting, putting our lives or others at risk it didn't even really probably occur to us <clears throat> that much that we, what we were doing. And I think it's a problem. You know, I, I can appreciate now when I hear people tell me that they teach their kids how to drink responsibly and even say like, if you're going to drink or when they go to college, they don't even assume they aren't going to drink. They're like, when you drink, and if you, if you find yourself in a situation where there's no sober drivers, I would rather you let me know and I'll come get you. Mm -hmm. I think that's just such a healthier thing than just saying, don't drink and let's just hope for the best. Right. Because then like if, if you do end up in a position where you're consuming alcohol, then you have a better idea of like how to drink more responsibly because typically it's, isn't it human nature to gravitate towards the things that we are not allowed to be doing in the first place? Yeah. If you're just told, and I've seen this with other things as well, like don't do it, don't do it. There's no discussion of, um, like why it's a bad idea or like ways to do it safely. It's just don't do it. And I think that's just like abstinence only based education. It's a whole nother topic, but that is shown not to be effective. Yeah, that makes sense. Because humans, like abstinence-only education, like if we uh, bury our heads in the sand as parents and pretend that children aren't curious or that teenagers aren't curious or young adults aren't curious, if we just bury our heads in the sand and pretend that doesn't happen, that there isn't a curiosity towards the world, because it is inherently children are curious about the world. They want to go explore things. They want to go find things. And when they do go explore and find things, have we equipped them with the tools that they need to navigate those things? And to class parents. Right. And to ask that. I was talking, I'm when I say abstinence-based education, I'm talking about sex um, because abstinence can also be used with alcohol. So I wanted to make sure it was clear, but they're both, I yeah. guess, say the same things about both. <laughs> right. Because, because if you just tell people don't do this, but, that's it. When in fact, it is legal for them to be doing that mm -hmm. and 
just because whatever, whatever, it doesn't mean people won't go experience those things or won't go experiment with those things. Um, it just, there's, there's such a lack of ability to know how to navigate that situation. I promise you. And I think it's true too, because when you think about, um, a lot of times people may be experiencing being a teenager inside of a close group and I don't know about your group, like what you were describing, like you absolutely ended up as, as a young adult being able to have access to alcohol. I had access to alcohol as a teenager, but I also didn't understand the implications and dangers of consuming alcohol or like how it could affect me or like safety, for example. I didn't understand that. Because I didn't have any information about it. It was just don't drink, right? Exactly. Yeah, and why is it not help, is it not a wise idea for a teenager to drink? What can happen in a social situation? I mean, that's a whole nother topic. Right. But like in the same token, in my home, like we had alcohol that was used for medicinal purposes. Right. <laughs> like, like the conflicting information and in, in the messages that were sent to me, I felt really confused. It didn't make any sense to me. Like, wait, what? Yeah. yeah. So with, with that being said, so what brought you here today? Well, <laughs> um, a couple months ago, somebody on my Instagram um, posted um, the show Sins of the Amish and recommended it. And of course I was interested in it immediately. Um, so I went and watched it. And then, I don't know, a month or so later, I came across your live on TikTok and we ended up having, I was like introduced myself to you and we have gotten to know each other over the last couple of months. And um, the show was um, very well done. And um you know, I've known about sexual abuse in these communities since it happened to me when I was um, probably in first grade. So <clears throat> um, I was very excited that I'm, I have I've known that there were people exposing um, people reporting that survivors were coming out more and that court cases were happening. I've known about that for a while. Um, and was very excited about that. Um, and it's something that I am very passionate about. And so I've been looking for a way to get more involved. And so it's been exciting to get to know you and then other people, you know, doing the same but different work. It's all, I mean, this is why I became a therapist, largely because of what happened to me. I didn't have, um, you know, what happened to me um, is similar to other stories in the sense that the ministry, when they found out, <clears throat> instead of doing anything about it, they did what they typically do. And, um, you know, so-and-so is going to confess his sin to the church and ask for forgiveness. And when he says that, he's also asking you for forgiveness. He's never asked me for forgiveness to my face, of course, but I'm supposed to forgive. And, I don't know if they said forgive and forget, but I definitely, that's definitely the message that I got. So over the years, I can't tell you, I always can't listen to that song 
um, you know, the invitation, I don't know if they did this in your churches, but there was a typical invitation song. Um, I think it was like, come as you are or something. I can't remember. I've heard, oh, I've heard that song. Yes. And that was always like an invitation song. And I almost can't hear the song because I would always feel convicted. I can't tell you how many times I went to the altar to pray to forgive this man and um, couldn't forget. So I thought that I didn't forgive him and all, you know, so it really wasn't until I was in college taking psychology classes where we talked about what it actually means and that you can't forget and that it's not humanly possible. You can't ask someone to forget something. It's not a possibility for them. So that I actually was like the light bulb clicked <laughs> for the first time. Well, and so I, I actually know somebody who also believes that it is absolutely a-okay to actively practice unforgiveness. What would you say to that? Um, it's, it's a choice. It doesn't, it's not something that anybody should be forced to do. It's not something anybody is owed, particularly a perpetrator. They're not owed anything. It's not. And I always explain when people ask, when we do talk about it, particularly in the therapy context, I always explain to them that it's not for them. They don't really deserve it. It's not anything that it's really for you and for your process because it can, it doesn't have to, but it can do something for you, but you don't have to do it. it can, it's when, and it's only if you want to, um, I, it was shoved down my throat without my consent for my entire growing up. So I would never do that to somebody else. Thank you so much for being so open about that. That is sadly the story of so many people and we all deserve better. We, we deserve better. Forgiveness does not equate silence. I've said it before. I'll say it again at the risk of sounding like a broken record. Forgiveness does not equate to silence. And yes, we were indoctrinated to believe that forgiveness equates silence, but that does not make it so. That is, that is not an absolute truth. Nope. It does a lot of harm to people to perpetuate that. Um, right. Rather than nobody ever check. I will say my mom did her best um, to check in with me, but she didn't know how to help me. Um, but I didn't get any help. And I, that's why I'm a therapist, because I want others to have the help that I did not have. Right. And, and I want to say this, too, is like at the risk of sounding some kind of way. When you grow up believing that and not having access to information that challenges any of those beliefs that you hold because you were indoctrinated to believe those things from a very young age, as a parent, where do you turn? Where do you turn to for information if you want to support your child? Do you have anywhere to turn to? Because if you go to the ministry, well, it's probably, you know, your fault because da-da-da-da-da as a mother, because women are often blamed. And it's not excusing the fact that your mother didn't know because she possibly could have reached out to maybe social workers. I'm just saying, like, we don't have appropriate information. 
and we need to have appropriate information. We need to be having these conversations with people that are still in the communities that we came from. Right. And, you know, my parents, we talk about it now and, but we didn't talk about it for years and years and years. But, um, and my dad will say like, I thought I was doing the right thing because we were taught to trust the, these, the ministry and they were telling us that this was the right thing to do. And, you know, and it wasn't, and not only all of that, but um, not only was I expected to forgive, it was business as usual. So like this person still had access, which didn't do anything after that, but our families were very close, still continued to see them. My parents treated him as if he was their BFF, just like they had always done. And that hurt me because I couldn't understand why nothing would change. Why wouldn't you be angry that this happened? Um, you know, my dad said that he was angry. I never, he never showed that to me. So I didn't have any way of knowing. Um, I just internalized all of those feelings. It's human nature for children to internalize all of those feelings. And it's also a thing of like, if you trust the ministry to tell you the truth and they control all your access to information, how can you do any better? Right. Because like Maya Angelou says, when people know better, they do better. So, yeah, that's a lot to unpack there, Lori. <laughs> but that's why, and that's why we're here. That's why I'm so passionate about the work that's being done. Because maybe when it happens to somebody now, they'll hear this or one of your other you know, many, many things that's out there and they'll know that it's, we don't just trust the ministry. We also, you know, cause we didn't have any access to counseling. Like um, my dad growing up Amish, they still don't, I still have to push my dad to go to the doctor about things. Um, and so a counselor never, <laughs> like, I don't even know if they knew what one was back then. Right. So, there's, there's like a whole, what I'm hearing from you is there's like a whole, even though he wasn't Amish or and he isn't Amish now, right? Obviously, but that affected him throughout his life. And it affected you by your, like your relationship with your father was affected by how it affected him. Right. Well, because they didn't, I, you know, now I, I can understand better because I understand the cultural implications, but I didn't understand why he didn't show me that he was angry or talk to me about it. But Amish, or at least he was taught, we don't show emotion. We don't talk about feelings. We don't, this isn't what we do, especially a man. We just buck up, buckaroo. Right, right. Right. Like, women can show emotion. And I think my mom did try and show me that she cared because I can remember a couple instances. Right. <clears throat> so what does it do when you take away people's abilities to express their emotions? Well, I think it's, I kind of try and explain to people who 
when if you stuff something like say you have a trash can and you stuff it and you just keep it's full but you just push it down you know how you can push it down what happens eventually it all it all kind of comes out of the it all explodes and that's what happens if you don't if you choose to or you aren't able to express your emotions for a long time it's going to come out sideways in really unhealthy ways like anger or something else like i've seen i've seen the anger part a lot because it's also an emotion that's more acceptable with men than sadness yeah but or like grief. but it's usually displaced anger so you know I don't want to call anybody out, but um, I have seen some where it comes out in other ways that, you know, we wouldn't, we're not like saying I'm angry about such and such, but we punch a hole in the wall. Mm -hmm. So people also don't know how to express anger when their emotions are stunted unless they go and find and explore ways to help them to be able to express emotions appropriately, right? Mm -hmm. Is it possible for them to just do that? To just just to do that, like to just to start all of a sudden showing emotion? Mm -hmm. Possible, yes. Likely, no. Um, and I think they have to be taught, and they have to um, really take the time to sit with. You know, they have to, do, it really will have to be with the therapist, to be honest. I don't really see any other way. I mean, don't they, don't people have to learn to sit with the uncomfortable sometimes? Yeah, and that's what I was going to say. Like, a therapist will help you, a, a good therapist will help you with that. Like, I tell people all the time, it's okay, just sit with it, just sit with the feeling. Like, I know it's uncomfortable, I know it feels grimy, just sit with it for right now. <laughs> and, um, right. yeah. They look at me kind of crazy, but. <laughs> so you specialize in like religious trauma and sexual violence, right? Amongst other things, right? Yes. Now, there are some people who I've heard say that religious trauma syndrome isn't the thing. What would you say to that? I don't know if it's in our Bible, the DSM-5, um, as far as like a diagnosis. Um, I feel like it, if it's not in there, it should be. Um, but I definitely know that religious trauma is real and it causes a lot of damage, a lot of damage. And um, that's in and out of the plain churches. That's across the board. You don't have to look very far to see it. No. Because, I mean, like, I've, I've spoken to a lot of people with, like, different religious backgrounds, and I feel like there's a very a variety of religions out there that have in some way, shape, or form, they have um, put out information or spoken in ways that have either created harm and trauma or that have further perpetuated more harm. Like when, when you were talking about being taught to believe that forgiveness equates silence and then confessing over and over and over because you're unable to forget, I, I would 
be inclined to think that first off, like to me, that would look like that's something that is religion causing harm. They're mm -hmm. using their position and they're causing harm and it's actually perpetuating further harm to somebody who's already experienced trauma in your case. And it gets worse than that. Like as, as far as like, I can vividly remember them sitting us down in, um, I couldn't say what grade, but at least middle school or high school, um, the girls, mm -hmm. always the girls, just the girls with a, a woman. I don't remember. Who, I don't know what her, if it was a teacher or a minister's wife and, you know, talking about purity. Talk, I know I hate the word, can't stand it. It's very triggering, but also like, you know where this is going, how we dressed. And like, if literally I remember them saying this, if the way that we dressed, if a man lusted after us, it was because we were not dressing modestly. And in my mind, I was like, I was a child. What was I, what could have I possibly, how could have I possibly dressed to make this person, um, you know, sexually abuse me? And, um, but I think the first purpose, the first person, you know, that the first time it happened or the, the first person, I was like, well, that I could like, that was maybe just like a, a fluke, but then another boy tried to, even a little older person, and um, but I knew it was up by then, so I said no, and he didn't. He kept moving, but then I was like, okay, so what is what am I doing wrong? I mean, again, I'm like 12, 13 at this point, and I and we weren't even allowed to wear pajamas in our house um, uh, until after dinner. Like we had to come to the dinner table dressed in our full Mennonite dress. <laughs> like, and this was even in the, in the more liberal Mennonite church. I can remember that. Like we weren't even allowed to come to dinner without our dresses and our makeup or our um, covering on, obviously no makeup. Um, <laughs> and, but like, I was going to say, does that message it sends to you is that it's your fault when you are sexually abused because you obviously weren't dressing appropriately that's not a thing that's that's so not a thing it's not your fault if you were sexually abused it is not your fault and the other question i have for you in regards to that um specifically so um when it comes to children and people talking to children about purity and modesty and all of that i feel like that is sexualizing children how do you feel like it is? Because I feel like it's like you're looking at children as sexual objects. The reason that you are speaking to these children about these things is inherently because you're looking at those children as sexual objects. Mm -hmm. So what would we want to, if we wanted to maybe suggest um, other things for people to do, because as you know, and I, I know many of you know, probably everybody listening to this knows, I've been working on research with um, data analysis, and we've put out some information from that. And one of the critical findings that we had from the people that that participated from the people that took our survey is that one, the language we as the, the language religious people use to describe CSA is inherently misleading and talking around the issue. Mm -hmm. 
such as like when you call it wrong or moral failure or unchecked yeah. or you know like sins of lust or like oh it's it's a demon or it's a you know like all of these things right like so when we start talking about the language that we use and it sounds like in your context this is entirely applicable even though and i want to ask you this like english was your first language right Yes. So when it happened to you, did you have appropriate language to report it? Absolutely not. Thank Absolutely you. Absolutely not. When I when I um when it came out, um it's I was our principal um in our private Mennonite school was also our the bishop of our district. And um, he, I was called to the principal's office, so that's super fun. And, um, you know, he asked me, did so-and-so, I don't remember how he said it, um, but do something to you, right? He probably said sexually, I don't know. I said yes, and he um, wanted me to disclose, and I wasn't comfortable. Um, and he asked me if I could tell my mom and if she could tell me, and I said yes. <laughs> um, I, so here's the thing, isn't most states aren't like teachers mandated reporters by their position alone well i yes but i don't know if that was the case you know we are talking i don't even want to i don't matter right. stronghold but at least 30 years ago gotcha okay and but even then i you know that these people think they're above the law and so they do not report <laughs> there's there's they don't they don't report no, right. absolutely not to the authority. Right. And so if you don't have the language to disclose, like that can be really difficult to navigate in right. the first place. But it's also why it's so important to highlight stories like yours, as well as the voices of the people who did uh, describe the ways in which religious people often talk around CSA. Mm -hmm. Right. Just like even saying like he's going to ask forgiveness to the church. Well, the church assumes a sexual sin, but they I mean, that's the way that because I don't think in ours that we would give details, um, but they would assume that. And so, yeah, it's just treated as a sin, but right. also a crime. It's a crime. And it also is um, it hurts. There's also a victim, a clear victim. And if there's a victim, then that means that that victim is hurt. And if that victim is hurt, what does that mean? They should get help. Right. <laughs> and where do they get help from? The altar, <laughs> which is not help. They pray, you're, they pray with you to forgive him. That's it. That's it. Uh-huh. I, I can um, vouch for that being an ineffective way of providing help for a survivor because, um, yeah, yep. I, I will vouch for that. So then my further question is, and I know this is going into uncharted territories, but please tell me if this is too much. Uh, my further question is this, like you, you've shared very bravely, but how does it feel to know that there's a collection of data out there that actually backs up like your personal story it's validating like 
you know, even <clears throat> I've heard when I watched the show, I heard um, a couple people on the show say it, but I felt the exact same way of like, even though I was alone then and I felt alone then, just knowing that I'm not alone now, there are other people that experienced this type of abuse makes me feel less alone then. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think it's like, and that's what's so important about it is that um, there's always with survivors of anything, there's, you know, community is so important for them to find other people that have gone through the same thing because, you know, abuse is not exclusive to plain communities. It's very common in churches otherwise, but Catholic abuse versus Mennonite abuse versus Amish abuse, they might all be different. And so it's a, there's some commonalities amongst all of them, but then there's also some unique things that are done differently in different types of communities. Right. And abuse is also not even just, like abuse basically transcends all borders. It exists in cultures around the world everywhere. Like it doesn't just happen in like one group of people. And part of the reason we talk about Amish and Anabaptist types of abuse here is because of the fact that for so long, media of all sorts to include books and just TV, news, everything has romanticized the Amish and Anabaptist lifestyle. People see plain people and they automatically assume they're Amish. Yep. They have romanticized them and stereotyped them to this place that when we start talking and we share our stories the way that Lori so bravely shared her story, people often respond with this whole like, but didn't you experience something good there too? Have you heard that before? I don't know if I've heard that specifically about this, but I definitely um, am familiar with that concept. It's so harmful. Or it's like, well, I own Amish furniture and my Amish furniture is great and I love it. And I'm like, yep, for, yep. Or like, oh, but the Mennonites they're such great cooks and they're so loving. Right. Yeah. So that in and of itself is the flying monkeys. It is gaslighting. It is alienating. It is invalidating. And yeah. it is literally saying that even though we lived this experience, our lived experience is invalid because you, whoever the listener is that responds in that manner, thinks that they know more about our experience based on this romanticized media that is good for business. I don't think they want to shatter the, because I think Ooh. like... Yeah, I don't think they want to shatter the image that they have because they're invested in that image. Because um, if you think about it, the world's full of so much darkness and all these things that that looks like a panacea. Like it's like, oh, right. there's at least there's this pure group. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, like, I think it would be so cool to be Amish. You get to like garden and live off the earth and do all these things and they care for each other and it's so great. And I just go, 
<laughs> but like, I don't think they want their image to be shattered. They don't want to know. They I choose. don't care if they don't want their image to be shattered. You know what? Just because you have decided that you know more about my life, you know more about my heritage, and you know more about my culture than I do, doesn't make it true. Yep. Just like people who, oh, can I bring her up? Can I bring her up? A certain social oh. work professor. Because <laughs> I'm thinking about this and I'm like, well, how has this happened? And it's all interconnected because it's all about business, right? This is the business model. The, we can't destroy the branding. The branding is impeccable, y'all. It, it is. It is absolutely impeccable. But can I bring her up or no? That's a, this is your podcast, ma'am. I mean, so as a um, licensed mental health provider, how would you feel about a social work professor who portrays herself as an expert on Amish and Anabaptist culture who goes around telling people, you know, that Amish are not often in the practice of um, self-reflection or critical or abstract thinking if 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 okay i'm just gonna stop you because i had a thought earlier this week and if she, if if amish and mennonites are not in the um habit of thinking abstractly or critically then nobody would ever leave but people leave because of that, because they think abstractly and because they think critically about what's going on. Are they trained to think that way? Absolutely not. Are they encouraged to think? Are Amish and Mennonites can, um, encouraged to think, to challenge beliefs? No, they're not. But can they? Yes, they can. So am I wrong in saying that it almost seems like when she writes that in her child welfare journal journal article that what she's doing is perpetuating a narrative that's now like promoting the voices of the powerful leaders in the church she absolutely is and she can't i don't think that you could say that you're an expert on any religion that you haven't been in yourself so i don't yeah so that's problematic and then like i really think you should talk to people who left because they're going to have a more objective view on it than someone. But she, what, from what I'm, what I've observed of her work is that she aligns herself and elevates the voices of the patriarchal leaders, which is always the men because women don't have voices. So she's mainly talking to and elevating men in these, in these communities. And then that's what she's using as her expert knowledge. And then, and then to top it all off, like if you, if you think about it, there's, there's like this whole, like, to top it all off, you have the, um, the researchers 
who have refused to allow any voices from the people. Like if you look at the Young Center for Anabaptist Studies, do they ever, ever do research with people that have left these communities? And I saw where she said something about if I was going to conduct a research study that included survivors, I would have to determine and have approval based on whether it could cause them harm. And I felt like that was a cop out because I feel like, yeah, anytime you're a survivor and you share what happened to you, it will be triggered or can be triggering, but, but it should be more of a disclaimer than an excuse to not use their voices because they know what they're getting into. And most people, I'm not going to speak for every survivor, obviously, but many survivors, I think, find more power in sharing their voice and their experience because their their voices were silenced and they were, when you're um, a victim of abuse, there's always a power differential. And so you were not, you didn't have, you either couldn't say no or um, you were manipulated in and in, um, groomed in a way that you didn't say no or whatever, but it can, you can take some of your power back by using your voice in ways that you want to. Um, right. So I feel like if anything, it would actually help them to know that they're, and they can, they can, they don't have to participate, but they should be given the opportunity. So, I will say this as for me personally, owning my story and using my voice was really empowering. I mean, I think that again, at the risk, like I'm not speaking for all survivors. I want to make it very, very clear that if you are a survivor and you don't feel able to speak publicly, you don't have to, you don't ever have to, if you don't feel able to write a book, You don't have to, because you know what? We are not obligated to speak publicly. We're not obligated to take what happened to us and find a way to make it into helping other people. We're not obligated to do that. I do this because I feel it is the right thing for me to do. Just like I'm not obligated to go become a licensed counselor to help people because of what happened to me. Lori isn't obligated to do that. We find ways to live with the trauma and the effects of it in our life in a way that makes sense to us. And that is all you have to do. Find a way to live your life to the best of your ability. And hopefully you can make sense of your life. Yep. I would encourage you to at least find a therapist. If, and if that's the only person you ever tell it to, I have clients that will say, like, I've never shared this with anyone else. Um, and they do not have to. Right. Um, but please do share it with a counselor who can help you make sense of it. Because there's so much of it that even just having one other person to say that was not okay what happened to you is so powerful for someone who's never had someone tell them that. Right. So if you go for no other reason than for someone to tell you that that wasn't okay, because every therapist, any therapist who's worth their, their salt would tell you that they don't tell you that get a new therapist. That's right. 
That's right. Because you can also shop around for therapists. Shop around. And if you ever, you know, I'm, I love to help people find therapists. So I will put that out there. You can get in touch with Mary and she can get in touch with me. But I love to help people find the right therapist for them because actually a lot of people don't know this, but the most important, and this wasn't meant to be a promotion of my therapy at all today, but <laughs> I just, I can't make it stop. Um, you know, if, um, and I don't even remember, what was I saying? You were talking about not, not, this wasn't meant to be a promotion of your therapy. But like, here's the thing is like, I just, I just hate, like, I, I like having actions for people to take yeah seeking therapy is an action that people can take that has benefited many 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 people mm-hmm. there's almost no one that it won't benefit unless you have a terrible therapist um but what i was gonna say is um a lot of people don't know this but actually the most important part of the therapeutic process is the relationship with the therapist. So if you don't like them almost immediately, they're not going to be effective, even if they're qualified. Like I'm not saying skill and knowledge isn't important because they're both very important, obviously, but you could have two therapists and one might be more knowledgeable and have more training, but that doesn't mean you're going to connect with them. And if you don't connect with them, it's probably not going to be as effective. So just know that when you're looking, that that's a big one. That's why we even encourage kids when parents are going to put their kids in therapy to let them look at the therapist bio and help that let them help pick the therapist out, even by their picture, because that can tell you a lot about someone. Well, and even like another thing is, is like, if your child is going to therapy, definitely, if your child does not like the therapist, you ask, you do check-ins with your child. You ask your child how they feel about their therapist. You really do. Yep. I've heard that a lot. I've even heard like adults that come to me. Yeah, I was brought to therapy when I was... 11 the therapist did like lied to me about something and i knew that they were lying and they never it's not gonna work it's just it's, not gonna it's work. just not gonna work so there's yeah also somebody has to want therapy to work in order for it to work let me let me just throw that out there so if you think that you're having a, a difficulty in your marital relationship and you're just gonna go to therapy and it's gonna fix everything um without you doing any work, that's not true. Right. And if your partner doesn't want to be there, they're not going to put in the work and really mandated therapy rarely works. Yeah. For that very reason. So with that being said, we're at about 51 minutes and I'd like to go back to like our original conversation, maybe a lighter topic. And if you want to know how I find a therapist, there is a previous video and audio available. You can go find it. I think it's like how, how I find a therapist. Uh, you can go listen to that. You can also reach out via email or contact information is on the website. Uh, but let's go back to why are you disobedient? I mean, because I feel like, Lori, I've heard a few things that make <laughs> you feel like you might be just a smidge disobedient. Like, I just, just, just a smidge. It's almost like just a tip. Well, look, 
<laughs> you had to go there. Well, I do have really short hair. That's pretty much frowned upon. Red nails. I have five tattoos. Um, I mean, but the color of your hair, too? The color of my hair. Did, yeah. did Jesus give you that color of the hair when you came out the womb? I mean, I had the blonde, yes. I was very blonde when I was born. But the pink was not there. I, we, we might have added that later. And no, my bishop does not approve. Well, I approve. My bishop then doesn't approve. My bishop. I approve. It's great. <laughs> I love the hair. I love the nails. It's, I, it's great. I wear pants if I want to. I drink alcohol if I want to. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. I mean, I feel like I'm one to speak because, I mean, look at that. The blue. I talk to men. I have male clients. That would definitely be a no-no. Because if you were a Christian counselor, which I'm not a Christian counselor, um, then you would um, you wouldn't be able to counsel men for sure. Oh no! Oh no! That's just not okay. We we just don't do that here, huh? Okay. <laughs> I just I just wondered. I mean. Well, Disobedient. How, how how have I been disobedient today? Just today. What have you done today? I mean, I am wearing a shirt that is made of material that isn't appropriate. Do you, do you see this pattern? Do, oh. do you see that? It's mm. it's really shiny. Oh it's got God. a pattern on it. It's like. Um, Plus it's not homemade. Say what? It's not homemade. Oh, no, it's not homemade, too. So I didn't sew this shirt. So I feel like that's one of the ways I've been disobedient today. I'm not really sure, though. I think um, the rest of it is just me drinking lots of coffee. And, you know, I'm obviously using a camera and it hasn't stolen my soul yet that I'm aware of. So there's that. Well, that's why you have no soul. Oh, darn it. We figured it all out. <laughs> oh, I have my nose pierced. Oh, I have a navel piercing, too. Oh, yeah. No. Straight. No. It's just, no. So, I do want to ask you, like, for, like, a one-minute synopsis of, like, what you would say to um, young adults who want to go out and try drinking. What should they think about? Ooh, um, you should think about, are you talking about under 21 or 21? Both, one for both. Oh, I guess either way, like, if you're going to drink, please be responsible. Like, drinking is not a bad thing, you know, um, and I don't even know, like, our law says 21, so... I think it would be wise to follow that, especially if you're going out places. Um, but be safe if you are going to drink. Know your limits. Don't get drunk when you're around, um, when you're not in a safe place. Like, you, you want to be with safe people so that you are, like, you are more likely to be victimized. It's not your fault for drinking. Um, but you are more likely to be taken advantage of if you are drunk or high because it's harder to say no. Um, so be with people that are safe and in a safe place and don't drive drunk. 
change your whole entire life. I am very grateful that nothing ever happened to me. I could have, I put myself in a lot of situations that weren't great. Um, I did too. So I, I would echo what Lori said about like, definitely if, try to follow the law at least. And, and, you know, don't, don't drink underage. And if you are drinking, um, know, know your limits. I would also say know your limits. Um, don't overindulge because binge drinking has actually unalived so many people and people that I actually care about have been unalived because of binge drinking. Um, binge drinking can result in people losing consciousness and then also that can result in them being assaulted because of that. Just because they were unconscious doesn't mean that it is their fault that they were assaulted. Um, That's the same thing because you'll hear people try and use that as victim blaming. Well, they shouldn't have been da 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 da. No, they shouldn't have been doing that, but that does the just because you make a poor choice doesn't mean that you are asking to be assaulted. Not only that, but can we stop talking about what the victim was or wasn't doing that they shouldn't have done and actually address rape culture? Right? We need to talk about that. Rape culture itself. Oh, boy. I don't think it doesn't exist in the plain communities. Oh, it does. It 100% does. And we can all testify to that. Yes, absolutely. I think that should get an amen. You should get an amen. Would you, would you like to lead us in a closing song? No. <laughs> no this, benediction. This little light of mine. Go out in peace and don't, don't praise. Be- don't be a shitty person. There you go. Well, Don't be a friend. shitty person. I like that. <laughs> One of the things my friend always says when we part or if we're talking or something is uh, make good choices. And she says something else, but I can't remember it. But one of the things she always says is is um, is um make good choices. I just appreciated a little hat for you. <laughs> is that... <laughs> Now you have your head covered in the <laughs> covered portion of it's covered. <laughs> oh Lord, oh Lord, praise be, y'all, praise, praise be. be, blessed be the fruit. There we go. <laughs> go out, go forth, and be fruitful, and multiply, and live your best lives. You deserve to have joy and happiness, and love, and empathy, and compassion, and support. That's my story. I'm sticking to it. Don't be a shitty person. (laughs) Don't be a shitty person. Amen. Mm